Well, good morning. Uh, it's a wonderful privilege to be here. And really, it was a privilege just to hear this wonderful story read so well. I kind of hope I can do it justice. It's a wonderful story. I suppose that for most of us, we are quite a bit more aware about the presence and the impact of Muslims in our world than we were maybe 10 or 12 years ago. Aware of the impact of Muslims around the world in political and international situations, but also of the presence of a large number, several million, in our own country. People who are here for their third or fourth generation. They're citizens. America is their home. They've grown up here. They speak a lot like us. They look a lot like us. Um, maybe that's why we don't notice that there are as many of them as we maybe recently have begun to realize there are. For you, perhaps, but certainly for me, this awareness began with 9-11. My first response to 9-11 might, might seem a little strange, but I, I've been a professor of religion for at least 20 years. I never read the Quran all the way through. That may sound like a lot, but if that's your profession, I mean, goodness, I should have read it several times. So at least I finally <laughs> read it all the way through. Um, in 2002, 2003, um, just about several months before the Gulf, uh, Gulf War, the Iraq War broke out, I traveled with Christian peacemaker teams to Iraq and encountered many Muslims there. Then, very surprisingly, I was invited to Iran in 2006 and 2007 to give uh, several addresses at a very major conference in, in Tehran. And I also began teaching world religions at a local community college. In my classes, I had perhaps 30% um, Muslims. 15% Jews, 30% perhaps are Christians in some more than purely nominal sense. And I thought, well, if we can't talk about what's going on in the Middle East in a class like this, well, what, what good is it to learn about religion? So I made the attempt, and uh, we never, never came to blows. It, it worked okay. Trying to explain to Muslims um, why Israel uh, and the Jews in Israel often have a very negative attitude, but also the reverse. Explain to Jews why Muslims also see them in a very negative light. <clears throat> well, certainly, um, we, as we seek to know how to relate to Muslims, we would <clears throat> reject the very negative kind of approach that many Americans take. Um, the approach, for instance, of a crank of a preacher in Florida who said he'd burn the Quran. Um, of some Coptic Christians in California who made a very uh, insulting film about Muhammad and which our media, with their penchant for spectacular stories, turned into international incidents. Certainly, we would be more welcoming. We would be more generous. We would uh, be more fair. But I also suspect, as uh, Christians, we could not accept the kind of common syncretism that kind of says, well, all religions are really the same doesn't really matter what you believe. They're all the same. Um, I suspect for us, um, a very radical understanding of Jesus is very central, and the grounding of that um, radicality in the scriptures is also very important for us. And perhaps it seems too bad um, that, well, we probably can't find much that's very directly related to Muslims in the Bible. Or can we? We can't and precisely in the story that was so beautifully read this morning. It's helpful to remember that the opening chapters of Genesis <clears throat> up through uh, chapter 11 deal with the whole world. 
And God's concern from the beginning and at the end in Revelation is the whole world. But then at the end of chapter 11, the concern narrows down um, to a very small family, um, Abram, Sarah, their nephew Lot, his father Terah. Um, and the concern focuses on this particular group of people and their descendants. But God gives a great promise to Abram and says, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So again, even though the story becomes much more particular, focused largely on the history of Israel through the Old Testament, um, the whole world being blessed is the goal of everything that goes on. Well, in this wonderful story, there are five actors. Um, two of them are either promises or infants <laughs> during much of it. So we really have three main actors. Uh, but we have Abraham. We have his son, Isaac. We have Isaac's mother, Sarah. And Jews and Christians claim Abraham, Isaac, Sarah as their they're forerunners. Um, but we also have another son, Abram's firstborn son, Ishmael. We have his mother, Hagar, and Muslims claim Ishmael and Hagar as their progenitors. This, however, of course, is in the Old Testament. That's the religion of Israel. That's what we call the Jews today. So we'd, of course, expect a rather negative portrait, wouldn't we, of Hagar and of Ishmael. Certainly, um, the stress is going to be on the superiority of Abram and Sarah and Isaac. Or is it? Stories in Genesis are, are just wonderful. They are so deep in, uh, in, their tra in tracing the personalities of these people. I'm mean, going to have to refer briefly to some of them, and perhaps it'll sound like it may be stereotyping a little bit. I don't want to do that, but I don't want to take till 2 o'clock uh, to, to try to do all the details of these stories justice. We can divide it into seven acts. Um, maybe that would be a little bit helpful. Um, as we recall this story, um, as Abram and Sarah traveled towards a land that God would show them on their journey, how do you think they would have interpreted that promise of God? You shall become a great nation, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. I think they probably thought, well, we're going to start having a bunch of kids pretty soon. And we'll watch them grow up, and they will become very influential, and we'll control a lot of territory. By the time we die, we'll either be a very large uh, territorial group or maybe a small nation, and well on the way to ruling all the earth. Well, I think we know what happened. Ten years went by. No one was born. Sarah had been barren. Sarah was still barren. And so the first act, Genesis um, 16, uh, verses one through, well, really one through three would be the best way to say it. We read that Sarah, Sarai, excuse me, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had a female Egyptian servant or slave whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. Now, this is very interesting. Notice that uh, Sarah says, I may obtain children by her. And this actually was the way it was often done in the ancient Near East. Monogamy really was the norm. <clears throat> but when a woman was barren, a couple couldn't have children. Well, then a concubine or some other person could <clears throat> come into the family. And the children would be legally that, uh, the children not only of the father, but also of the mother. 
The term here uh, for, uh, in my Bible here, for uh, Hagar is servant. Um, slave is probably a better translation, but it, it's not the usual word used for slave. Um, the, the particular word means a kind of a companion for a wealthy woman, a woman who um, uh, travels with her, uh, meets friends with her, uh, looks to her dress, to her jewels, uh, kind of takes care of her. So she's not a slave in the sense of really doing the dirty work, you know, uh, like, like the, her ancestors, uh, descendants were later, um, excuse me, uh, like the Israelites were later in, in, uh, in Egypt. But she's owned by Sarah. She's owned by Sarah. So yes, she is a slave in the most important sense. Why would, why would Sarah do this? Well, I think not only that she wanted children and that Abram wanted children, I think it's very likely that God promised they'd have children. So perhaps for Sarah, this is an act of faith. Okay, um, it's not waking for us, but God's going to do it. So, okay, let's try Hagar. Abraham, well, <laughs> well, you know, polygamy, <laughs> that's, that's kind of nice. Uh, Abraham apparently thought it was rather, rather nice. It's interesting in the Quran. Um, we know, I think, that Muslims can have up to four wives. But here's the text, uh, Surah 4, verse 3, uh, that permits it. it. It says you can have up to four, but, verse 3 says, if you fear that you cannot maintain equality among them, marry only one. That will make it easier for you to avoid injustice or unfairness. And so many Muslims, of course, legally they can't have more than wife or more than one husband here in the United States, but they say, no, our religion teaches that. It's hard enough, you know, to get along with just one spouse. And so we leave it at that. And you Americans and some of you Christians, uh, you have several wives or husbands. You just have them one after the other. You don't have them together. You have serial polygamy. And we really take monogamy very seriously. And some of them will say that, and that does have some truth to it. Um, well, what happens is that the difficulty of avoiding injustice or unfairness proves to be very true. Polygamy doesn't work very well in this situation. So we go to the second act, um, and we read, uh, starting with uh, verse 4, that Abraham went into Sarah, she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt upon her mistress. And then we find in verse 6 at the end, um, that Sarah dealt harshly with Hagar, so harshly that Hagar fled away from her. Well, who's at fault here? Of course, this again is the, the Jewish uh, version. I mean, it certainly must be Hagar. I mean, she probably really laid it on thick, didn't she, and made, made Sarah feel awful bad? Well, but um, Sarah, or Sarai, blames Abram. Very interesting. Uh, he, she says, I gave my maidservant into your embrace. I think certainly um, referring to the sexual relationship. Uh, quite clearly, Abram and Hagar were spending some, some nights together. Um, and how sensitive was Sarah to this? You know, was it really as much contempt as Sarah thought? Well, we don't know, but I, all, we have to read very carefully in these narratives. Um, and when Sarah told, Sarai told Abram that she was uh, upset at this, uh, Abram was completely passive. Go ahead. She's in your power. Do whatever you want. At that point, Ishmael, his own son, was probably just a little bit of roundness, you know, in, in Hagar's belly. Oh, go ahead, you know. And uh, 
But Sarah, or Sarai, treated Hagar so harshly that she fled. Sounds like maybe the punishment is a little bit stronger than the crime. Sounds like perhaps maybe all three were a fault at some kind. So uh, Hagar fled. And uh, as we read, they, he, she fled into the wilderness, in the, in the, and uh, she uh, became very exhausted, um, sat down by a spring of water. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from, and where are you going? And she said, I'm fleeing for my mistress, Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said, return to your mistress and submit to her. Huh, okay. Now we have the answer, right? Hagar was wrong, obviously. God said, you're the servant, go back. That's all there is, right? No, there's a lot more. Just got to read the next verse. <laughs> Behold, or the, verse 11, <clears throat> you shall bear a son, and you shall call, oh, excuse me, I need to go up earlier here. The angel of the Lord said immediately, verse 10, I will certainly, surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. Now, in the previous chapter, which I've not read here, uh, uh, God says to Abram, look at the stars. And if you can count them, and you can't, that's how numerous your descendants will be. Very much the same language to Hagar and to Ishmael about countless descendants becoming a great nation. So um, God, God promises that. Uh, the name Ishmael means God hears. So this incident that God hears, here's, here's Hagar. God hears is his name. The way Ishmael is described uh, can look rather negative. I think to some extent it is. Um, you know, he shall be, uh, the version here said, the wild ass of a man. Uh, when I was in college, I had some fraternity brothers who would fit that description. Um, <laughs> But that's not what it means. Um, the, the wild ass or the wild donkey was an incredibly st sturdy creature. Uh, these donkeys uh, could endure, uh, endure um, sub-freezing temperatures at night and temperatures over 100 degrees in the day. They could live off the sparse desert. They were very independent, very strong. So this means at least that Ishmael is going to be a very strong and independent person. Yes, there's going to be quarreling among him among, and other Arabs, we might say. This is kind of a stereotype of Arabs, which maybe to some extent has been true. But uh, when it goes on to say um, that he shall, I believe the, um, the translation here said, he will be at odds with his kinsmen. Uh, I think a more accurate translation, he will be over against his kinsmen, kinsmen which probably means that most of his descendants uh, will be, um, at least in small towns, they will be fixed and he will always be a nomad. He'll always be wandering back and forth. So he will be at odds. He won't live with them, at least not for long periods of time. And what this says, if you think now that, that Hagar's a slave, um, is that Ishmael will be free. And that she will probably be free. That's one of the meanings of this passage. Well, what's even more astounding is Hagar's response Hagar says, not only has God heard, she says, I have seen God, um, and you are a God of seeing. Truly, I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called, I think Titus pronounced it right. Can you tell us how to pronounce it? You said it right, I think. <laughs> Bir Haleroi, I think. Bir Haleroi, something like that. And it's significant later on in our story. Um, well, what is astounding here is Hagar actually sees God. How many people in the Old Testament see God? I can only think of two others. 
Moses, who spoke to God as a man to his friend. Isaiah saw God lifted up in the temple and his train filled the temple. I don't really think there's anybody else. Tell me if there is someone else. Who saw God? Moses, Isaiah, and Hagar. Now that's an extremely high evaluation of who Hagar was. Well, um, Hagar goes back. Uh, Ishmael is born. We come to 14 years later. Um, it seems that things are going, going pretty well. The heir to the promise has been born, indeed, Ishmael. Uh, and then God really throws a curve at Abram and Sarah. And in chapter uh, 17, uh, if we um, start here about verse, uh, um, verse, verse uh, 15, God comes to Abram and says, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings and people shall come from her. So what's the response of Abram? You know, the great paradigm of faith. He fell on his face and laughed. As Ernie at least used to say to Bert when my kids were little, that is the dumbest thing. <laughs> this is the great father of our faith. These are real people. <laughs> These are our real people. So first he laughs, and then he says, Oh, God, but let Ishmael live before you. You see, Ishmael is no longer just a little roundness in Sarah's belly. Ishmael is now his teenage son. He has a very strong relationship. And when he thinks of that, well, no, he already has a son. He loves his son. That's what he wants. And Sarah, <laughs> well, she's too old and I'm too old. I mean, you know, what in the world are you doing to us, God? But God does uh, make a distinction that uh, Isaac will be the heir of the promises that, that uh, God had promised. But if we go back a little bit, uh, we find at the start of this chapter, um, there's the um, institution of the rite of circumcision. And uh, in 17, chapter 17, verse uh, 10, God says to Abram, and this is before uh, the encounter that we talked about, he said, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you, the covenant of circumcision. So, uh, verse uh, 23 or verse 26, that very day Abram, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. It says he took Ishmael, who was the first descendant of Abraham to be circumcised? Ishmael. That's the covenant with Abram. That's the covenant with Abraham and God. Israel, uh, Isaac was his first male member. What might that mean for today? We as Christians say the blessings that were to Sarah and to, and to Isaac and to Abraham come to us. Is there some way then in those that consider themselves descendants of uh, Ishmael and of Hagar, are they also blessed in some way? I'll say more about that a little bit later. Well, this story doesn't um, turn out too well, or so it seems. Um, we find that Isaac is born, he's weaned. And uh, the translation in, in verse uh, 9, chapter 21, verse 9, is a little bit uh, difficult exactly. I think the one we read here said that Sarah saw uh, Isaac uh, playing with, uh, or Ishmael playing with Isaac, the older brother, you know, about 17 maybe, playing with a little brother who's maybe about three. Uh, it could mean that he was playing. Uh, we also hear the word laughing. Some translations say mocking. He was laughing, he was mocking Sarah. 
Uh, again, that probably seems to be a little bit her sensitivity, but the issue was, here they are, they're brothers, they like each other, they play together, and the son of my slave is not going to inherit. That's the issue for her. Her son is going to be the one. And, uh, strangely, God approves that. Um, but, as we'll see, that doesn't mean that he completely gives up on uh, Sarah, uh, excuse me, on Hagar or on Ishmael. This time, Abram's uh, response is different. Uh, Abram was very grieved because of his son. He's now a grown you know, teenager, at least. This is, this is very hurtful. And we do sense uh, uh, in the leaving when Hagar and Ishmael left, uh, there's certainly some care for them. Uh, Abram went and gave them a, a skin of water um, and, and, uh, and some bread. Although he was a very wealthy man, he certainly could have at least given them some money also. But there's some sense of care. Uh, they go out into the wilderness. Again, it's, dark, it's hot, it's dry, the skin of water runs out. Again, there's this, this longing, we find in Hagar particularly, this, this holy longing for God. And this really despair. Don't let me see my child die. I'm pretty sure that he's going to die. Well, again, God appears. And it's interesting, it also says the, the God heard the voice of the boy. So Ishmael also is calling out to God. He's now taking a role. He calls out. And so God hears not only Sarah, but also Ishmael. And again, uh, he, God, um, repeats the promises. Um, and he does actually before he, uh, Abram and Sarah cast out Hagar and Ishmael in verse 13. He says, I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman because he is your offspring. And back in chapter 17, which I, I didn't mention then, um, God promises again the promise to Ishmael. And he says there will be 12 princes. Twelve. There are 12 tribes of Israel. Twelve princes. Of, uh, of the Ishmaelites. Again, there's a parallelism between these, not, not a strong contrast. The angel of the Lord again rescues them. Um, it says at the end of the uh, chapter here of this story, uh, God was with the boy, he grew up, he lived in the wilderness, and became an expert with the bow. But basically, it means for Hagar and for Sarah, um, uh, for Ishmael, <laughs> excuse me, they're no longer slaves. They're free. Here we find, uh, maybe for the first time uh, in the Bible, that God takes the side of the slaves, the side of the oppressed. And it's rather curious that here the oppressed is an Egyptian and the ones who enslave are Hebrews. Go to Exodus, the, Hebrews, uh, the Egyptians enslave the Hebrews. Here God takes the side of the Egyptian and sends the Egyptian free from the Hebrews. Well, is that the end of the story? No, not quite. We go to chapter 25, and we learn that when Abram finally died, Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him. So Ishmael is somehow still in the story. He's somehow related to, in, in some, some personal sense, it seems, to Abraham and to his brother Isaac. And in chapter 25, verses 12 to 17, we have the genealogy and the 12 princes of, of, of Ishmael. And there's a very interesting detail uh, down in verse 11. It says, after the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at, 
however you pronounce it, Bir Laharoi. That's the well that Sarah named. That's got to be, if it's a settlement, a very, very small one. That's a small village somewhere in the, in the, in the desert. And also we find in chapter 24 that Isaac had lived there before. Well, did he go to visit and actually live next to his half-brother, Ishmael, and therefore go to be with, the, with the Hagar also? The, the Muslims say so. And there is one rather interesting verse in the Quran, uh, Surah 14, verse 40. Abraham says, Praise be to God who has given me Ishmael and Isaac in my old age. Well, Isaac, Ishmael, when he was cast out, was what, about 14, 15? In my old age. And that's not when he died. I mean, he couldn't bless, you know, they buried me. No, they, they blessed him in his old age. Also, Muslims say, and the Quran says, that it was Abram and Ishmael who built the Kaaba. The Kaaba, you know, that large, large black kind of house that's in the center of Mecca that's really the holiest site in Islam where people go and make the pilgrimage. Um, Isaac, uh, Ishmael and Abraham built that and they cleansed it. Yes, Abraham visited Hagar and Ishmael often. He didn't just let them go. Well, I think there's enough here in, in, this, in the, this Bible here in chapter 25 the, of Ishmael and uh, Isaac being there at the funeral and then Isaac settling at the well that Sarah had named, that pretty well indicates, no, even though we get the impression that Abram, Abraham and Sarah just cast them out, but no, a relationship really did continue and that Abraham continued in some important way to acknowledge Ishmael as his son. Well, what implications might this wonderful story have for dealing with Muslims? Again, I think the most important thing is to remember that promise to Abraham at the beginning, that in you shall all nations of the earth be blessed. That's the main goal of God from beginning. And we read in Revelation, we see people from every nation, tongue, people and tribe around the throne praising God and praising the Lamb. That's the goal of the whole thing. We need to keep that in mind. Now, since Genesis treats Hagar and Ishmael better than at least I would have expected before I read this story carefully, we might ask, how does the Quran treat Sarah and Isaac? Well, here are a few sample verses. Surah 11, verse 71. When Sarah laughed, we, or Allah, bade her rejoice in Isaac and in Jacob after Isaac. 1946. We gave Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Each of them we made a prophet. We bestowed on them gracious gifts and high renown. Surah 2, verse 136. We believe, a Muslim should say, we believe in what was revealed to Abraham, Ishmael, Isaac, Jacob, and the tribes, to Moses, to Jesus, and the other prophets. One way uh, I think that we can relate to Muslims is to become more aware of what they really do believe. And they, they claim the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, we claim the Old Testament with the Jews. We add the New Testament. We say this is the fulfillment. The Jews say no, 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 no. Um, but uh, the Muslims go one better, and they claim the Quran as the fulfillment of the Old Testament as of the New Testament. So they claim that the Old Testament is their, their scripture too, the New Testament. And the Quran calls Jesus the Messiah, which the Old Testament doesn't. 
So they actually do believe that uh, Jesus is the Messiah of God. One, one very simple way to do this might be to just find a copy of the Quran, one that's readable, um, one that's not written by some polemicist either for or against Islam. Uh, find one that has an index in the back and just look up Abraham, look up Sarah, look up Jesus, look up Christians, look up Jews. This at least can get you into it. And you'll find various things. You will find some real criticisms of Christians and Jews, but that's mostly because they don't live up to what they say they believe. That's most of the negative statements about Christians. And you'll find that there's a very high regard um, for, uh, for a Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, uh, and also for Jesus. So then maybe we should ask another question. Well, what about Jesus? The um, Muslims say there are five great prophets in their history. Abraham, Moses, David, Jesus, and Muhammad. So Jesus is held in very high regard, at least as Muslims understand it. However, um, very frankly, for us there is a difference uh, in our understanding of Jesus' relationship to God. For Muslims, God is inexpressibly majestic and high and holy and awesome. Uh, perhaps we might say, God uncreated, God who always was, endless, exalted, reign forever, evermore, mighty, wondrous, loving, circled round with awe, holy, 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 holy is the Lord. That, that could very well be a Muslim, <laughs> a Muslim man. That's the, you know, what they believe, but for them, for this great uh, architect, governor of the universe, to actually come down and be a human and live in this dirty world, that degrades God. That's unfitting. And it is also for Jews. Well, for us, it's very different. For us, it's awesome, and it heightens the majesty of God. It heightens the power of God that somehow God could remain what God is and also become what we are and be both at the same time. I mean, that's just absolutely awesome. And most of all, it's God's power, God's majesty is revealed in Jesus, but also God's love. And to us, that's a, very, that's a very wonderful thing. There's another, I think, very important difference between Muhammad and Jesus, and that is that in their ministries, both of their ministries were threatened with extinction. Uh, both Muhammad and Jesus were threatened with death. Uh, when Muhammad and his followers were threatened, he fled from Mecca, uh, fled from Mecca, and, um, come on, Medina. <laughs> Medina, went to, went, went to Medina, uh, which is actually the beginning of the Muslim calendar. There he organized his followers uh, into an army, and he became a warrior, and he conquered uh, the Meccans with a sword. Um, Jesus went ahead to death. He took death. Now, I think it's important, uh, as we look at these differences, to recognize that the, the notion that the mighty awesome God would become a mere human being. And the notion that the Messiah would actually die, I mean, those sound very contrary to reason. I mean, common sense would say what the Muslims say, what the Jews say. So when we say, no, it's different. <laughs> uh, Jesus really was the Son of God in a very, very different sense. Uh, he really is our Lord. Uh, he really is the author of life even though he died. Well, that sounds kind of crazy. And uh, I think we need to recognize that, that that only makes sense if in some way you begin to see things 
from a Christian perspective in a deep way and begin to sense that, begin to sense that awesome and wonderful love that we find in our incarnation of Christ and in his suffering. And that, of course, should be what motivates us when we talk with Muslims or anybody else. Finally, um, what about this the circumcision of um, Ishmael? Uh, what does that mean? Ishmael was the first one uh, circumcised, the first male uh, initiated into the covenant with Abraham and with God. Therefore, can we say that the descendants of Hagar and Ishmael, in some way, already, in some way, are objects of or participate in the blessings to Abraham as we do? Well, I'm not sure of all the implications. I don't know exactly what it means. But as I look at these passages, um, I have to say, yes, it seems so. If not, go ahead, let's, let's talk about it. Yeah, in some way that blessing to Ishmael uh, is, is God's blessing. So those who claim Ishmael as their forerunner, in some way, I believe, God's blessing extends to them. Certainly doesn't mean that Islam and Christianity are exactly the same. But some way... As far as I can see from the story, in some way, Muslims today are also blessed as descendants of Abraham.